Hi, my name is Mark Chansky, and I'm the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network. And here we are with another Net Talk episode. And for this episode, we want to focus in on a, on a very interesting and intriguing and theologically pregnant and delightful book. It's called The Angel of the Lord, a Biblical, Historical, and Theological Study. And it's written by two men who are pastors in the Reformed Baptist Network, uh, Matt Foreman and Doug Van Dorn. Good to have you brothers here with us. Make a noise so that we can hear you, gentlemen. <laughs> Good to be here, Mark. Yep, thanks for the invitation. All right. So uh, just by way of introduction, let me just read uh, what it says here uh, about you two on the back cover. It says, Matt is a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. He's been the pastor of Faith Reformed Baptist Church in Medial, Pennsylvania since 2002. He was the founding chairman of the Reformed Baptist Network and is a lecturer in practical theology at the Reformed Baptist Seminary. Can you fill in maybe a little tiny gap there, Matt, about yourself? Sure. What, what else? I'm not sure what else you want to, you want to know. Um, well, you're kind of a Melchizedek, possibly to some. Uh, you went to Westminster and uh, maybe even maybe even just add a little there. Uh, you mentioned the book about how you went back to your alma mater at Westminster and were studying regarding the angel of the Lord and found out there's really the last hundred years not much said about it. Right. Yeah. So I think it was probably back in like 2013 or 2014, um, I was preaching on Exodus. Doug was actually preaching in Genesis at the time. We've been friends for years and were kind of corresponding back and forth, sharing notes. Uh, Doug was sharing me, with me some of the things he was researching, discovering on the angel of the Lord in Genesis. I was seeing things in Exodus that I'd never seen before, making some connections. And uh, yeah, I went to the library at Westminster, which is about 40, 30, 40 minutes from, from my home here, and kind of went through the library looking for stuff on the angel of the Lord and was uh, pretty shocked to not find any kind of focused study among evangelicals written much in the last hundred years. You'll see, you know, Christ in the Old Testament, angel of the Lord references in systematic theology books, but no real uh, in-depth treatment, uh, probably going back to Hingstenberg in the 1800s. Um, that, you know, since then, I've found a, a couple that, that have mentioned it more, but, um, but, but really it was a, a real lacking area. And so Doug and I started talking. There were, of course, also theological controversies that were going on at the time that we were thinking, this is needs to be part of the conversation, and it's not. And so, it was kind of the first time I I said, you know, I'd I'd love to be able to write on this just because I I'm seeing a a void there, and nobody else is doing it. And uh, we decided to to work together on it. Well, let me go to the other side. Uh, Doug Van Dorn. Doug Van Dorn has pastored the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado since 2001. He holds a Master of Divinity degree from Denver Seminary. 
He also has uh, co-hosted the radio show Journeys End, a uh, podcast. He has also written several books, including uh, Questions and Answers Companion uh, to the best-selling The Unseen Realm. He's also appeared on numerous podcasts and radio shows. He's also helped found the Reformed Baptist Network and has taught for Reformed Baptist Seminary as well. Now, Doug, you mentioned in the book that your daughter asked you, and maybe this is part of the beginnings of your interest in this theme of the angel of the Lord. Now, wait a minute, Dad. Did Moses actually speak to the Lord? I mean, hear him with his ears and see him with his eyes? Tell a little bit about how you first got interested in this theme. Well, it was really, uh, I think I was preaching through Exodus, Matt, um, before I did Genesis and um, came across some work from this scholar named Michael Heiser, who was not known at the time, and um, ended up reading uh, a book, early early version of the Unseen Realm that he was giving out. And that's kind of where I learned about several things that I've written on, but the angel of the Lord part of it for this, like I had never really considered some of these things, like even that question with Exodus three and the angel of the Lord in the bush, you know, because you have this view in your head from the 10 commandments and Charlton Heston, that it's just, you know, it's just uh CGI in a, in a flame in a bush. And that's all there was a voice in his head or, or whatever. And then you read that the angels actually there. And it's like, how come I've never seen this before? <laughs> and so, you know, that one step led to another and start seeing the angel, uh, in a lot more places than even, even is mentioned with just that word angel, you know? So that was kind of my beginnings of it. Well, let me read you an analysis I actually wrote for the book. It says, listen to this, my analyzing your book. Back in the 1940s, Gerhardus Voss, in his epic work, Biblical Theology, called the angel of the Lord the most important characteristic form of revelation in the patriarchal period. And now in 2020, Matt Foreman and Doug Van Dorn masterfully unfold the truth that Voss barely began to scratch the surface of. They give amplified meaning to David Murray's profound slogan, Jesus on every page. The book, and this is kind of borrowing your phraseology and imagery, Doug, the book is a cannonball blast through the walls of your long-settled and comfortable theological castle exposing passageways and footprints of the friend of sinners who strangely first appeared not in Bethlehem, but in Eden and beyond. The authors painstakingly show how they're saying nothing new and just riding in the wake of titans like Athanasius, Luther, Calvin, Owen, Thomas Watson, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Hodge, J.I. Packer, Joel Beakey, Philip Ryken, and many more. For me, my Old Testament will never again be the same. And so I really think that, that people who come to grips with what you're saying will find that there's this opening up of new vistas regarding the Word and the Lord Jesus. But let's, let's try to start walking our way maybe a little bit through the biblical narrative. And... Uh, Let's just consider, oh, let's take, uh, even in Genesis, you think of early on, you say that 
to Hagar, the angel of the Lord appeared in Genesis 16 and 21. Talk about that a little bit. So you have, you actually have appearances before that. It's not, that's the first time the, the name angel of the Lord is explicitly used, but you have appearances before that to Abraham, um, uh, where there's suggestive things like the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, um, you know, Genesis 15, um, and then, you know, in Genesis 16, you have this, this angel that Hagar speaks of as the Lord um, and receives, you know, receives that that name from her. Um, you know, he she she names her the him the God who, who sees me. And um and then and then that theme starts to appear again and again that there is this figure who is in the text, seen as distinct, sent, you know, from the heavenly realm, but with with this being who is speaking with the authority of God himself, receives worship like God himself. You know, we know there's other passages where angels appear who refuse to receive worship and say, like in Revelation, you must not do that. Uh, but this angel receives worship um, you know, a, you know, is given the names of Yahweh, bears the glory of Yahweh, um, and so that's just like the first, the first example of that explicit name, angel of the Lord. And one of the things we explore in our book is that um, there's all these other titles, whether it's the name of the Lord or the word of the Lord or the glory of the Lord or the face of the Lord, that are given almost a, a hypostatic status in the Old Testament, you know, are, are treated as, as this uh, almost a unique person. And so what we're suggesting, and one of the things we suggest in the book is that that all of those titles that appear to have this, this hypostatic status, the status of a person sent, are, are the same person. And then when you start to trace that through, and you start to do develop a biblical theology and you know comparing scripture to scripture and then taking that into the new testament you start to see that the new testament and the bible itself is is claiming all of those titles for this one person hmm that's it's really helpful what what about uh, say genesis 22 as we consider just uh, walking through here we've got abraham's only son isaac going up to the mountain but then there's the angel of the Lord that appears. What about that? I mean, that story is, uh, because it's the angel of the Lord that appears, it makes the foreshadowing of what's going on there later on that same mountain with Jesus when he dies uh, all the more amazing. Because And 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 it, in, in the region of Moriah, that's where yeah. Jerusalem is, isn't it? Calvary. It's right there. It's the same, same mountain. And, and you know, uh, that story actually begins with Isaac giving up his only begotten son, the way that Hebrews talks about it. Um, and so here you have the angel of the Lord kind of interfering right as he's about ready to kill his son and out comes the, uh, you know, the ram that will end up becoming the sacrificial animal that will die instead of, instead of Isaac. So rich, and in that, rich tapestry. And in that passage too, you start to see, you know, early in the passage, it's God, who calls to 
to Abraham and, you know, to test Abraham and speaks to him and says, take your son. And then later on in the same passage, out of the blue, it's the angel of God who calls to Abraham and says, you've not withheld your son from me. Meaning the angel is saying, I was the God who, who appeared to you and told you to take your son. And so in the text, there's this kind of, um, you know, identifying of this angel as God himself. Um, and yet, why call him, why call him an angel? And that begins the kind of question that you begin to trace through these passages. And again, you're saying this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And that's been the identification of the history of the Christian church from the earliest days of, of the Christian church. And so when you start to read your, your Old Testament that way, it deeply enriches your understanding of the passage that it's the angel of God calling out to Abraham saying, spare your son. And this is the same person who is the only begotten son who will not be spared. Oh, wow. Rich stuff. So, so we move along to Genesis, say Genesis 31. There's, there's the angel who meets with Jacob. Uh, Jacob's fleeing from Laban, his father-in-law, but he's referred to the angel of Bethel. And then in Genesis 32, he wrestles with this angel and he gets his hip uh knocked out of its socket commentary gentlemen uh jacob's own commentary i think comes from that uh later in genesis 48 uh, this was this actually was one of the favorite passages of a puritan that i discovered named peter alex who i ended up publishing uh kind of part of his work on the angel of the lord as a supplement to our book and uh, Genesis 48, 15 and 16, Jacob says, the God before whom my fathers, Isaac, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. So it's a parallel of the God, the God, the angel. So it's an overlap in his mind. And, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when, when he's wrestling with the angel, uh, and then he he demands to know his name. And there's this uh, moment where he goes, why do you need to know my name? And that ends up being played on later with both Moses and the Samson story with the idea of, of wonderful. My name is wonderful. And then, of course, in Isaiah, uh, where um, the prophecy of the Messiah comes, um, it is the, uh, what is the, what is the, the English, or yeah, the English is opposed to the Septuagint, Matt. Do you remember where it talks about that? Yeah, it's Isaiah 9, where it says, you know, um, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To us, a child is born. And the, the Septuagint version says, his name shall be called Angel of Great Counsel. Um, and then, it, you know, it has that, uh, so it's, it's identifying the the wonders Doug just mm -hmm. mentioned. His name is wonderful. The Septuagint just identifies him as the angel of great counsel. So, so then we move forward into uh, the, the Red Sea parting when the Egyptian military is about to mow down Israel and the angel of the Lord appears in Exodus 14. Talk about that. 
Well, the you angel of the Lord is, uh, he, he appears in this uh, smoke, uh, the fire, the pillar that's leading them out. And if you read like Meredith Klein's stuff, you see that, um, and I like to bring this up because it's not just the, not just the second person, but it's the third person who's also present um, in the flame and the cloud. So when, when the angel of the Lord's there in the bush in chapter three, he's in the presence of the flame, which is an image of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the same mm. thing going on with uh, the cloud and the pillar of fire, where I think that's in Exodus 14. It talks about how the angel is in the cloud. And then he's the one who, you know, is the, is the leading the way is the, is the, you know, commander of the armies. And then uh, Moses ends up singing his song about this angel, uh, this God who rescued him. And that's where, you know, that's the first actually place where um, the uh, language that Jacob is using with wrestling ends up coming up later where Moses talks about he's this God of wonders. Any other mm -hmm. angles on that, Matt? Yeah, there, there's really it's really fascinating verses in there because it it the text will make a distinction between the cloud and the angel in the cloud, and it'll say Yahweh in the cloud, and it'll say the the cloud moved and went behind them, and the Lord moved and went behind them, and then a few verses later it later it'll say the angel of the Lord in the cloud moved and went behind them, and so again it's kind of blurring the distinctions between between these things and yet and yet allowing a distinction to stand um and then in just a few chapters later in exodus is where you start to get some really interesting language where god is speaking to um uh to moses about the god he's going to send with them and you know and, and you know i think the the premier passage in uh, the the Sinai Covenant, and it's really the end of the Sinai Covenant. We call it the greatest promise of the Sinai Covenant. At the very end of the covenant, God promises he will send his angel with them, and you need to pay attention to him and obey his voice because my name is in him. And then as the passage proceeds, it starts to talk about the Lord is talking about what I'm going to do and what the Lord is going to do. And if you obey the Lord, he will do this and this and this, and I will do this. And so it's making a distinction between the Lord who is speaking and another Lord who is being sent. And, um, you know, it's very interesting language. And then you start to see similar language like that, that there's this angel who bears the name, who is distinct from Yahweh, being sent from Yahweh, and yet who is Yahweh. Um and if you're a New Testament Christian, who else could that possibly be? Yeah, Matt, yes. Matt's raising a really important point here, Mark, that um, a lot of people don't understand this. So when they read LORD in the Old Testament, all caps, um, usually say Yahweh, um, I, don't, I don't know what goes through most people's minds, probably just the, the one essence, the one being God would be my guess. Um, but... What we're suggesting, and this is, we're hardly the first people to see this, is that probably most of the time that you read that word, it's actually the angel of the Lord. And sometimes you see actually two lords in the same verse, mm -hmm. uh, one in heaven, one on earth, like you see in the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis 19, 24, which became a favorite of the church fathers 
to say that, um, you know, the one in heaven is the father, the one on earth is the son who Abraham has been talking to, who he knew as the angel. So, you know, to, to see that and to realize that that's actually explicit in the Old Testament is not something that the New Testament is making up is very, very important and helpful for our theology. So, so then what's, as we move forward, say, say into a, Mark, go ahead, you on, one of the, one of the things that um, we talk a good bit about in, in the book is that this idea of what Doug just articulated there about two lords was also discussed by the Jews. This was not just a Christian thing. Um, and that there, there are, there's been work done this even by Jewish scholars recognizing that there's the strand of Jewish theology, especially prior to the New Testament, that was wrestling with these kinds of verses that they called two powers verses. Um, you know, now we obviously believe in a trinity, but the, the Jews were wrestling with um, why are these two lords, two Yahwehs appearing in the Old Testament? And how is this being that is being sent that has this, you know, has hypostatic properties, who is spoken of as the Lord, but is also spoken of as being sent from the Lord. I don't, we don't think the Jews knew exactly what to do with it, but they were wrestling with it. They were seeing it. And they had, you know, exegetical talks about these verses. They called them, you know, two powers verses, two powers texts. Um, and what's really interesting in history is that it's been shown that only after Christianity came into the world, after the incarnation, after Jesus, in about the second century, the, the Jewish rabbis began to be really alarmed because so many Jews were becoming Christians that they basically made that kind of two powers theology heretical. They, they declared anathema on that, that subject and uh, kind of squashed any speculation about those verses. But one of the things we argue in the book is that a lot of the passages that Jesus references in the Gospels, or that Hebrews references in Hebrews 1, were Old Testament texts that were already debated among the Jews as referencing um, a, a multiplicity in God. And so Jesus was, was, was already kind of uh, using those texts that had a tradition and saying, you know this from your own Bible, you or you should know this from your own Bible. You know, probably the most famous of those would be like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, um, you know, or texts like that. So the, these are things that the that were definitely there among the Jews. Um, and the, that the church fathers were then taking, you know, the most famous would be Justin Martyr and his apology to the Jew Trifo is trying to take the Jew Trifo through all of these Old Testament verses and saying to him, your own scholars talk about these things. And we're just telling you, we've discovered who this is. It's Jesus. You know, it would have been glorious to be able to be a, a fly on the shoulder of one of those men on the road to Emmaus when the Lord Jesus sp spoke about how uh, the, the scriptures have spoken of me. And you wonder just to get back to our walk through the Old Testament, how oh, in, uh, say, Numbers 22, the idea of uh, the angel of the Lord who has the drawn sword, who appears to Balaam, 
or likewise uh first chronicles 21 how he appears there at the threshing floor of arauna and how this is the appearance of jesus christ doug talk about that 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 threat the the angel of the drawn sword yeah i think probably the most famous one well, a lot of people don't realize that the angel of the Lord is the one who's kind of there with the Balaam and the and the talking donkey. I mean, that's it's pretty remarkable. And the fact that he has a drawn sword, it, the, probably the most famous passage of this is in Joshua 5, where Joshua meets this fellow and he looks his, up at him and, and he's terrified. And he's like, um, are you on our side or their side? And, and he goes, I'm not on anybody's side. You better basically you better be on my side. And the then captain um, of the hosts, captain of the hosts, uh, Lord Sabaoth, as Martin Luther would put it, right? Um, and then Joshua takes off his sandals because the place is holy ground. Well, that's actually echoing back to Exodus chapter three, where Moses meets the same person, but in that passage, he's called the angel of the Lord. So there's more, you can see more overlap when you start to read these passages together. You see in one, he's called the angel, and the other, he's called the captain, the host of the armies of heaven. So the Lord to, Jesus has been walking all throughout the Old Testament, Matt. Yeah, the, the passage I always think of is the, the passage of the census, um, you know, where David does the census and God, um, you know, tells him there's going to be judgment because this was not a census that, that God had commanded and uh he sends the the angel to uh to bring a plague and uh and david sees you know this vision of the angel with the drawn sword over jerusalem and then as he reaches jerusalem the the father uh you know yahweh tells the angel to put his sword back into his sheath um and this is where david is going to create the the altar that will one day be where the temple of Jerusalem uh, will be established. What's really interesting is comparing the the, the Samuel uh, version of that story with the Chronicles version of that story. And when you compare the two, you will see that there's times when it's Yahweh talking to David and saying, you know, create this altar, whereas in the, I think it's in the Chronicles version, it says the angel of Yahweh was talking to David and telling him to create this altar. And so even in the comparison, you see this blurring of distinction between Yahweh and the angel, keeping of a distinction between Yahweh and the angel, and yet their, you know, their their identity is the same. So it's a Yahweh who sent the angel, and yet the angel is Yahweh. Um, and it's, you know, a really fascinating passage because of its foreshadowing of the New Testament. Then you get to Zechariah and you have the prophecy of Zechariah where, uh, you know, Zechariah prophecies, you know, uh, to take the sword and to strike the man sitting next to me. Um, and, you know, it's this, the, the judgment that the, the angels carrying out in the Old Testament the, is now going to be turned on the angel himself. And he's going to be the one to satisfy justice. Yeah, this makes me want to take up that book and read again. And I encourage everybody who's listening. This is this is a great read. Again, the book is called The Angel of the Lord, a Biblical Historical Theological Study by Matt Foreman and Doug Van Dorn. 
Uh, what about, uh, oh, 1 Kings 19, you've got Elijah. He's running away from Jezebel after the euphoria of Carmel. And this guy's depressed. He's down for the count. He's suicidal. And then this angel appears to feed him and to put him to sleep. What about that, Doug? Well, I mean, it's just uh, what, what we're trying to set up here and establish is that the angel is the is the god of is the god of Israel. So when when God is coming to a prophet or a king or whatever it might be, it's going to be the angel of the Lord because he's the God who covenanted with that people. Um, you know that that story later. Um, you know, when, when Elijah ends up going up to Mount Sinai and then he hears this still small voice, there's this echo going on there actually of the Garden of Eden where, uh, you know, the Lord is walking in the cool of the day. And, huh. you know, uh, and we didn't mention this before, but, you know, the angel really does go all the way back to Genesis 3, probably earlier in Genesis 2, but Genesis 3, where he's the one who uh, is walking, um, judging, and then he covers Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal and then talking to Noah. And it's not a disembodied voice that Noah's hearing. It's it's the God who is the God of the covenant. So, you know, to see all these stories that we're bringing up here is just, it's something that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised at. We should be expecting. So, so what are you saying then, gentlemen? Okay, we could go... Again, further to uh, uh, Daniel three and the fourth man in the furnace. What or 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 what is the form or identity of the one with whom Jacob wrestled? What are you saying? Are you saying this was Jesus uh, in theophany, pre-incarnate appearance? Are you saying that did he have a, a hand which we could he could twist the uh, femur of Jacob and pop it out of its socket? Did he have I, well, what are you saying as far as the identity of, of, of this person, this angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate Lord Jesus? So I'll, I'll put it this way, um, two, two, two important things. The first one is that we're not saying that th this person is human, not in incarnation the way that we think about in the New Testament. Whatever is going on, it's angelic in form. But the second thing is that when this angel comes, he has physical properties. So in Genesis 18, he can be have his feet washed. He can eat with uh, with uh, Abraham and Sarah. He can, like you just said, wrestle with Jacob. When you know when you have images of hands and and stuff like that, God taking me outside, touching me, whatever, lifting me up. That it's not. You know, sometimes it might be anthropomorphic, but other times it might literally be the angel who's there helping him. So like in, in Jeremiah 1, when the, the word of the Lord appears to Jeremiah, and it, and it even uses the word appears, and you, you think of that as, well, he heard a voice. But then just a few verses later, it says, he reached out his hand and touched my mouth. Well, you, you, you know, you go back and you realize, well, then the word of the Lord was a visible thing there. And there's something visible that's touching his mouth. And, it, you know, the, the proper term is not anthropomorphism there. It's, it's theophany. It's Christophany. Um, that there, there is a, a, a 
a manifestation of God in the created realm um, that is that is really there. And as Doug Doug said, now what's unique in the New Testament is the incarnation that he takes on flesh. So in, in the Old Testament, he's taking on a form, he's taking on appearance, supernatural appearance. But in the in the New Testament, that's being veiled and united to human flesh um, because he's coming to be our representative to be with us. And so nothing, no, nothing that we're saying undermines the uniqueness of the incarnation. It highlights uh, the importance and the uniqueness of the incarnation. So, so then link this up. You get you talk about the incarnation in Bethlehem, and you go to uh, Luke two, and it speaks of uh, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified and frightened, and the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which should be for all the people, for today is born to you a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then a multitude of heavenly hosts appears at the birth, at the incarnation of the Son of God. Make some of these connections for me. Yeah, I think that what's going on there is that it's the uh, it's not the angel of the Lord coming to um them at that point in time it's oh, no. probably gabriel and so that's actually hearkening back to daniel uh, chapter 8 uh, where we actually see gabriel and another angel we think who is the angel of the lord um so why is this happening you know because you know this second person of the trinity is doing something that has never happened in all of history before he's never been a human being um, we're not claiming he was a human being in the Old Testament. A lot of people will say that. I mean, he was manifesting as a human. No, he wasn't. He was manifesting as an angel, and angels are distinct species from us. He only becomes a human in the womb of the Virgin. And so this declaration that Gabriel is giving uh, is kind of proof of that. Yeah, and, you know, if, if people have never really encountered this before or thought about it, you know, they're, they're going to wonder, well, is it like, you know, is it every time I see that the term angel of the Lord, is that like the angel of the Lord? And you do have to be careful because there are many angels who can be sent from God. Um, not every time, that, like, especially in the New Testament, there's, it'll talk about an angel of the Lord appearing. And we're saying that's an angel of the Lord. It's not the angel of the Lord. Um, and so you got to look in context to see if this angel that's appearing is being given these kind of uh, divine attributes. Um, but what Doug just mentioned, even with Gabriel, is really interesting. Um, you know, that it's Gabriel who comes to Mary, comes to Joseph, um, comes to, you know, John the Baptist's father. Um, and the only other time Gabriel is mentioned is in Daniel. And in Daniel, you have this figure who repeatedly is sending Gabriel uh, and a, a voice over the waters or a figure over the waters spent sending Daniel. And well, who is it that sends another angel? Well, it's the commander of the army. And actually you see that phrase, commander of the army, prince of the host mentioned in Daniel as well as part of Satan's rebellion um, is a rebellion against the commander of the host 
he's the one who sends sends Gabriel. Um, and so, you know, it, it's fascinating that Gabriel is the one who comes at the incarnation um, as Jesus is being made for a little while less than the angels. Mm, mm, that's rich stuff. What about practical implications for the Christian life? I think of Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. And the promise is, and, and of course, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. But then the statement is, for lo, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, help me with there. I think of, uh, we've got Elijah. He's really downcast, but there's a helper with him. You want to make any parallels there? Do we have a helper with us? So many parallels. Um, I think part of it is the, um, there's a parallel with the Exodus 23, the angel of Exodus 23, the last promise of the covenant, where the, the promise that this angel is going to go with you and go before you and bring you to the promised land is now being restored. Um, it's actually taken away in the Old Testament because of the people's sin. Um, but Jesus is now saying, I am with you always uh, to the end of the age. You have these parallels throughout the Gospels where the Father says, you know, of the Son, this is my Son, listen to him. And it's the same language as Exodus 23. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a restoration. This is what God has been planning all along that is finally sealed to us in the new covenant in a way that was not sealed in the old covenant. Hmm. Doug, what do you say to your daughter who wants to know about, hey, dad, okay, this is this is great theology. This is uh, uh, intriguing um, studies of the scriptures as we look at these imageries, but how is it relevant to your daughter in a practical living? Um, you know, I think there's a real problem in some segments of the church that divorce the new testament from the old testament like really badly and um will will then almost create a second god without intending to i think that you know so you end up with this mean god of the old testament and this really nice god of the new testament or something of course they're not really reading either testament properly to get either of those but um uh because god is you know one and all his attributes are 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 together and indivisible but um, when you see that Christ is throughout the Old Testament, so he's not just, we talk about him in prophecy. Uh, we talk about him in type, typology, but to actually see him present there, like that quote that you gave from Voss at the very beginning, that he's kind of the main actor of the whole scripture. And you understand that he's been there from the beginning, that this is the same God who's just manifesting and coming in a different way in the New Testament, in a way that that is now uh, providing a way for us to have salvation through his own coming as one of us is offering himself up as the lamb uh, through the high priest, uh, you know, who does, who does this work for us. It, it keeps you from being able to separate God like that, to separate the testaments like that. And all of a sudden the totality of scripture becomes one. And, um, I don't know of anything more practical in all the world than that, quite honestly. Yeah, Doug, I think of uh, Chronicles of Narnia, a horse and his boy, and the way that 
he comes to a point, uh, the boy, where he's so downcast because he's been so abandoned. But then the account, this, this, this big breathing beast is alongside of him. And he says, I was with you when you were uh, being pushed out of the boat. I was with you when you fought against those cats. I was with you when you were afraid of those lions. And basically it's Aslan who was there. And so I, I think of it too, how uh, the Lord Jesus, we, we see him now well before Bethlehem. He was with us, like Matt says, in the Garden of Eden. He was with us uh, in Egypt. He was with us in the wilderness, with us as the walls of Jericho tumble down. And it just deepens this love affair that we have with the Savior. So so let me give you guys a last word, first to Matt, then to Doug. Give me a last word, Matt, and then Doug, and we'll close up. Well, a minute ago, uh, Doug mentioned, or I think maybe you mentioned in your question, just the supernatural aspect of things. You know, the other thing it kind of enriches is your understanding of that what God is doing is also on a heavenly plane. There's a there's a war going on in in heaven, um, and the you know he is interacting on a heavenly plane, and you know there's a there's a spiritual or supernatural battle again going on against principalities and powers. Well, there's this one who all along was the the the, the covenanted God of Israel who has now reclaimed all of the nations, who's covenanting not just with Israel, but now with all the nations. And he's dispossessing the, 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 the fallen gods of the nations, judging the principalities and powers, stripping them of their, their claims. Um, and so, and all along, this was where things were, were headed. Um, and you, you start to make those, those connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it, it just it gives you um, so much of a bigger sense of the unity of the Bible, the unity of God's plan, um, His His love to send the Son um, to us in the New Testament in a way, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, His His glory is so much beyond us, and yet it's amazing that He came and tabernacled. Uh, among us to to bear to be our covenant bearer and and to bring us into um a, a, to a relationship with god uh, we will we will be one day judging angels mm, because mm. of the work of jesus yeah well said matt doug what do you have to close well you know mark you brought up um jesus with us in egypt and my mind went straight to a verse in jude jude 5 and i remember reading this many times in the niv kind of the bible that i read as a kid and then uh the esv comes along in the late 90s and i read this for the first time and i was i was like that that's i've never read that before what's going on uh and here's the difference there's a textual variant and um the NIV said, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that the Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The variant is, and the ESV has it this way, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And there's another one of these in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, where one, one reading is, we must not put the Lord to the test if some, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. 
And the other one is, but we not, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And when you go and you look up what the cause of the variant was, and this comes from, I think it's Metzger's um, textual commentary in the Greek New Testament. And he talks about how the harder reading there in both of those is clearly Jesus and Christ. And probably what happened is that early on, some scribe said, well, it couldn't be Jesus. It couldn't be Christ. That's got to be a mistake. So he corrected it back to the Lord when, in fact, it was not a mistake at all. And, you know, to me, what that says is that Christians have had a hard time with Jesus in the Old Testament since the very beginning. And we, we're trying really hard to make it so that it's normal for people to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We want that to be the case. Uh, you know, we came across a document uh, called a letter to six bishops uh, that Matt was just about ready to talk about here because um, our minds are going in the same place because this is really important. And it was a really early document that uh, where these six bishops talked to this guy named uh, Paul of Samosota, I think was his, his name. And um, Paul was uh, basically saying that that the angel of the Lord is not Christ. And these guys went through passage after passage after passage, said, no, the received tradition of the church has been since the apostles that the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And so we're trying to recover what the church once knew and help people to see that Jesus is in the entire scripture and that he is the God from the beginning to the end of it. Well, gentlemen, you make my mind ricochet back and forth, and I really appreciate this iron sharpening iron that creates cerebral sparks. Uh, and if you want to get more, again, the book is uh, The Age of the Lord, a Biblical, Historical, and Theological Study by Matt Foreman and Doug Van Dorn. I, I love being in Reformed Baptist Network with you gentlemen being shoulder to shoulder, working on the wall, seeking to build the kingdom, to take the gospel to all nations so that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Every blessing. Thanks for spending time with us.